Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Pentateuch. Uh, we got some weird stuff today. Like, this is kind of one of the most fascinating passages in the entire Pentateuch, in my opinion. If only because we're literally going from, like, the most famous, the most important passage, the most told and retold familiar story in the entire Pentateuch to one of the most boring and awful and frequently skipped passages in the entire Pentateuch, like, in the course of one reading. Um, yes, we are going from the big story of the Exodus in our last section to wandering around in the desert, receiving the Ten Commandments, and then an extensive description of exactly what the tabernacle is going to look like. Um, on the one hand, like, yes, there's a reason why so much of this is boring, and I don't actually intend to spend a whole lot of time talking about the particular design philosophy uh, of the tabernacle as handed down by God over the course of, like, uh, half a dozen pages. Um, on the other hand, I do want to look at this passage fairly closely. Like, honestly, I'm kind of more interested in talking about this than I was about the Exodus in some ways. Um, because the Exodus, like... Again, it's been told, and it's been told, and it's been told. Like, this story is probably one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, and it's been, you know, talked about endlessly. I don't have that much to add or to contribute. It's in the weird sections of the Pentateuch that I tend to find the most to talk about, because we are actually getting a lot closer into the mind of God, and a lot of, or we're getting sort of a first-hand glimpse of what God's priorities are in many of these cases. Um, and in this passage especially, we get a lot about who God is and what God expects of his people, um, more in many w ways than what we saw in Exodus or in the Exodus story. Like, the priority of God in the Exodus story is to show off his might, his power, his strength. And he does so very impressively. Like, again, the whole point of that story is how he just can totally wreck the most powerful gods of the most powerful civilization in the ancient world without breaking a sweat. And then, you know, as an encore just crushes the entire Egyptian army under the sea in, like, one fell swoop. Here, we're getting the quiet moments afterwards. Like, this is actually what I find more compelling in many ways. Like, we as a rule, as much as, you know, the Exodus story is really impressive, we do not encounter those kinds of miracles on a regular everyday basis. What we are seeing here in the back half of the Exodus, of the book of Exodus, or indeed the back half of the Pentateuch altogether, is how to live with God and how God lives with us. Um, it is much more a matter of everyday business, and consequently it is something that is kind of in many ways easier to apply to our own lives, even if it isn't flashy or sexy. But the other side of this is, I tend to think that this is the passage, these are the kinds of passages that get overlooked the most. Like, there are quite a few passages that I stumbled across in, in my reading for today that I thought, you know... Like, even more than is the case in, in many of the stuff that I've gotten uppity about earlier on in this lecture series, there were plenty of passages where I was like, why don't Christians read this? Why don't they pay more attention to this? God is making explicit commands that have direct application to everyday life, and people are completely missing the boat here. Um, and I want to talk about that. 
Like, I want to talk about how God works in our lives when things are quiet or when things are, you know, not as flashy or impressive or historically dramatic as the sort of things that we see in miracle stories and, you know, the lives of patriarchs and, like, things that are closer in scope to what we would call mythology. Um, I want to talk about how the interaction between God's between God and humans tends to work in this book and why that is so unique because this, this is unique. Like you can talk endlessly about, you know, comparisons between different passages in Genesis or the, the Exodus story compared to other mythological traditions. What you really can't find in those other mythological traditions are God hanging out with his people the way that the people tend to keep failing God in some uh, respects, and how, at the end of the day, the story doesn't stop. Like, that's the moral here. That's where we are in this book. The big story ended, but the people are still alive. God is still working. The story is essentially continuing. We hit the natural endpoint of the Exodus story. Presumably the Pentateuch could be over now. But the point of the Pentateuch is not, this is the incredibly impressive story of how God rescued the people of Israel. This is literally the story of how God and the Jews came to understand each other. And this is going to be much more quiet, much more subtle, much more troubling in many ways. If only because it doesn't have a nice, neat ending. Um, like recently I was, I was reading, uh, one of the film critic Hulk's articles. I believe it was his review on Oppenheimer. Um, and he was talking about how on a long enough timeline, when you let the story keep going on beyond all of the natural endpoints, beyond the place where you would think to stop it, it tends to turn maudlin and tragic. Um, like, I think the example he used was King Lear, or it's certainly a connection that I tend to make, if only because Shakespeare doesn't let the story end when we all want it to. Instead, it keeps going on, and people keep dying, and misery keeps happening, and we keep waiting for the curtain to close, and it does not happen. That's kind of what's happening here. Like, if we stopped the story of the Exodus at the point where the Red Sea closes over Pharaoh's head, you could very easily have the sort of big Hollywood bombastic musical number where, you know, the music swells and Charlton Heston gets up and says something really profound or really inspiring about freedom and then everything fades to black and, you know, we all go home feeling edified and, you know, happy that God is there to protect us. But again, that's not where this book ends it keeps going to the point of it being awkward. Like, chapter 15 itself is super awkward. I was tempted to include it in the last reading because it is kind of the logical place to go after the Red Sea. Like, the first half of chapter 15 is literally, you know, the song of Moses and Miriam, and they're worshiping God and praising God, like, thank you for liberating us from the Egyptians. You know, this is the logical place for the story to close. But notice that it doesn't even close the chapter. Um, like, I don't know whether this is, you know, the warped humor of, of some later commentator, because I don't think this is, like, naturally in the Hebrew text, the, these chapter divisions. I could be wrong, though. Um, at the very least, the idea that this story does not stop at its logical endpoint, 
the fact that we have the Song of Moses, they do worship God, and then we immediately transition into, and now they're wandering in the wilderness and getting grumpy and upset. That's kind of genius. That's a really important thing to remember about the way that humans and God interact. As much as we usually think of, you know, God's work in the world as being in terms of these grand miracles, as much as this is what we teach children in Sunday school, at the end of the day, there's way more Bible that's about the other non-dramatic stuff. The stuff that is about relentless failure and about just trying to get along, you know, day after day after day with God looking over your shoulder. And I think it's very fitting that the back half of the same chapter that gives us the incredible praise of God by Moses and Miriam literally closes with there's this, like, well that they stumble across and everybody is getting really grumpy because they it's been like three days and they haven't had any water. And then they come to this well at Mara, but apparently the well at Mara is very bitter, like incredibly bitter to the point that nobody can actually drink the water. So like they're actually suffering. They, there is in fact this great danger presented here. And then God's like, hey, put that tree into the water and it purifies the water and now they can drink it. Um, notice this is going to be kind of typical of how we're interacting with the, the Hebrew people going forward. Um, like, notice that right after this, we also get the manna and quail episode. We're going to get a bunch of these over the course of the rest of this book. And the emphasis is pretty clear here. Like, there's actually a pattern being established. A pattern that we already saw a little bit back when, uh, Pharaoh was initially told, you know, let my people go. And he's like, I'm going to give you backbreaking work. And everyone's like, darn it, God, why did you do this to us? Um, we don't get an explicit or sentiment of resentment here until uh, chapter 6. But notice how prominently that's placed in this story. Um, so chapter 16, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Now notice there's a lot to unpack, even just from those four uh, verses here. Notice that it's been a while. Like we're literally on, you know, month two, day 15 since departing Egypt. Presumably a lot of that trip involved just getting from where, you know, uh, Goshen to the Red Sea and then like actually crossing the Red Sea. That seems to be included here. But still, we're talking about like, all right, we had three days in the wilderness literally without water. And now it's been a couple of weeks and we haven't even had food. Now, on some level, the children of Israel are warranted in this. Like, if indeed you are wandering out in the middle of the wilderness and there is no food to be found anywhere, yeah, it's warranted to possibly be thinking to yourself, dang, this kinda sucks and maybe we shouldn't have gone into the wilderness like this. But notice that these are the exact same people who not, like, 
75 days ago watched God literally rain flaming hailstones and bring on, like, put out the sun for several days and sweep through the land of Egypt and literally kill every firstborn son. Like, clearly they are under the protection of God. And it, if anything, it is more significant or at least more emphasized here because literally, like, this is two chapters after the Red Sea episode. Like, as much as we're given the time frame here, like, it's been a while, time has passed. In another perspective, time really hasn't passed. Like, from the perspective of this book as a whole, like, the entire story of the Bible, a story that spans something like, you know, 1,500 years and change, more if we count the oral traditions of Genesis or whatever's going on there, we're talking about, like, nothing as far as time is concerned. A handful of days at best. And somehow these people who like personally were there for the most impressive miracles God has performed are suddenly crying about how they're hungry and they should have stayed in Egypt or it would have been better for them to literally die at God's hand. And this is going to get worse. Like, here we get, it would have been better for us if we had been killed by God in Egypt. Um, notice that here at least they're positing that God is still in charge and it would have been better for them to be killed by him. Later, especially in Numbers, we're going to get passages where they don't even do that. Where they're like, eh, who is this God person? Like, it would have been better for us to just stay in Egypt and be slaves. Like... The emphasis very clearly is that God can provide for them and does provide for them in ways that are honestly astonishing and miraculous. And, you know, in doing so, God specifically emphasizes, remember this, teach this to your children, remember this generation to generation that I brought you out of Egypt. And then you turn around and the Hebrews are already forgetting already failing to hold up their end of the bargain, which is literally just to have faith. And notice that God is conscious of this. Verse 4 says, you know, I will rain bread from heaven. Like, I am going to solve the food problem. And God does provide first manna, and, or first quail, then manna. Uh, we'll get to that. But notice, too, that God specifically says... I'm going to give them these certain instructions in order to prove them, whether they will walk in my law or no. This is a test. Like, everything we're about to read from this point forward in the Pentateuch is a test. Like, arguably everything we're going to read from this point forward in the Old Testament is a test. God is testing the children of Israel trying to find out if they are a, the appropriate people to choose for his grand project. Remember, like, we talked about how, you know, Abraham received this grand blessing. God is not trying to renege on that blessing. The blessing will go forward. But it would appear, at least from the way that God seems to present it here and from many other passages that we're going to see later on in the text, that God does have contingency plans. That there are other children of Abraham at this point. We do not necessarily need to pick Jacob's own, you know, progeny for whatever the, the blessing, the, the fulfillment of the promise might be. We're still unsure, in short, or God is still unsure, whether these people will in fact be as faithful to him and as, you know, 
uh, appropriately worshipping of him as he would expect from the people that he is about to bless, to give land, to turn into a priestly nation. God's promises are still pretty clear here. They are still in force here. But what we are seeing is, in some ways, testing, temptation. You know, in much the same way as we have that story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, it's clearly a parallel to this passage that we are about to get into, where the uh, the people of Israel are being tested for 40 years in the desert. Now, admittedly, the original plan is not for 40 years. God is way more charitable, way more generous than that. We will talk about how that particular mess goes down. Uh, first with our next discussion next week with the, the Golden Calf episode, and then later when we get to Numbers and the children of Israel really do screw the pooch when they fail to go into the Promised Land at all. Um... But what I want to emphasize here is notice that the way that the manna is in fact presented to the children of Israel is itself very clearly a test, very clearly designed to be a test. Like notice that God promises straight up there's going to be manna from heaven. Every morning you're going to wake up and there's going to be bread. And like we even get the description and it's really awesome how it's described that it's like the dew is sitting on the, the wilderness floor but then when the dew like melts in the morning sun there's apparently like some kind of residue, some kind of like seed or, or grain that's been left there. Very small but also very sweet and it can be like ground up and turned into flour and you know basically turned into bread. At which point it tastes like wafers and honey. Like, this is not just, you know, grain, but delicious. And for no good reason. Like, no apparent cause. And yet it is something that just miraculously occurs. No one can explain why this is the case. There is no, you know, explanation for why this happens. And as much as, you know, again, like to sort of contrast the big dramatic events versus the subtlety, like, science may very well go out of its way to explain how it was that, you know, like, the plague of blood, like, the water turning to blood, turned into the frogs, turned into the flies, etc. I've never heard a scientific explanation as to where the manna comes from, or how it persists for 40 years. Um, because it will persist for 40 years, effectively. Um, notice too that we get this weird kind of parameters about how you collect the manna from heaven. Like six days out of the week, you go and you collect manna, but only enough to feed your family. Like there's this particular, you know, measure that we have that each person only gets like so much, but it's enough for everybody and nobody goes hungry and everybody's fine. But notice that there are rules about this. God specifically commands them not to keep any for the next day. Um, and notice that the Israelites very much fail at every one of these commands. Like everything God tells them to do, they test and we are shown the outcome. So God says, do not keep it night to night. Like, do not try and, you know, save manna for the next day. And some people naturally squirrel it away because they're worried that it's not going to happen tomorrow. Like, literally the first day that this happens is the first time they've seen this miraculous food from heaven. So they gather it up and they, they hoard it in many cases. Like, they're worried that they're not going to see it again tomorrow. But then they wake up tomorrow and there is, in fact, fresh manna on the ground but what's more the stuff that they saved is apparently full of worms like it's all gone bad it rotted overnight but notice that this is not consistent 
Six days they gather manna every morning, but on the sixth day, God specifically commands them, today you're going to gather twice as much, and you're going to save it, even though I told you not to on the other days, because we're going to celebrate the Sabbath. Like, even here we see God's emphasis on the day of rest very much in the forefront of our, of our consciousness. And notice that this too is an act of faith. Where the act of faith for the first five days is do not save anything. On the sixth day, after it's been proved that by saving something you're accomplishing nothing and it immediately rots before you know you can get to it. On day six, now the act of faith is are you in fact going to save it when God says so in order to rest on the next day? And just as God says, it's fine. Like all the stuff that they collected, the extra mana that they collected the day before on day six is fine and they can eat it on day seven. And of course, some people break the rule and they go out to find the mana that's collected on day seven and there is none. Like somehow, six days in a row, God produces mana, day seven, nothing. Five days in a row, if you collect mana and save it, it goes bad. But on day six, it's fine. God's instructions are literally to the letter here. And notice that that's the test. This is a test of their faith. And I want to emphasize this because I feel like this is something that Christians as a rule forget immediately. Like, and I, I can't blame them. Like, again, the emphasis in this text is that this is a test of faith and it is an effective test of faith because everybody immediately violates it. Um, most people are not going to follow God's rules. They are going to hedge their bets. They're going to, you know, protect themselves as much as they possibly can. They're not going to trust God in short. But that's very much the emphasis here. God is effectively saying, I am in charge of your well-being. And if you want to get through this wilderness and get to the promised land and receive the blessing that I have offered you, you are going to have to trust me. Which is kind of an insane thing to have to say. Like, again, the people of Israel, last we saw them, were hanging out, enslaved to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was laying down these extremely draconian laws that literally killed off every firstborn son. Their situation was truly awful. And God rescued them in the most dramatic, miraculous way possible. They witnessed for themselves the wonders that God performed. This is not even hearsay. They saw it with their own eyes, and yet they forget. They do not trust him yet. They still do not have that relationship that God is striving to achieve with them. And so even when God gives them explicit instructions, this is what I want you to do with the manna, they don't follow it. They, again, hedge their bets. And Christians do the same. As much as there are many, many passages in the New Testament that emphasize, you know, you're supposed to have faith and it is, you know, the faith that will set you free or faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains or even, you know, something as, as seemingly disconnected as Jesus saying, you know, do not worry because God is paying attention. Not a sparrow will fall, not a hair from your head will leave without God's knowing. Like, do not worry about clothing. Do not worry about food. Do not worry about tomorrow. God is protecting you. God will take care of you. I know plenty of Christians who will not make those sorts of sacrifices, who will not trust God in that way. 
And I, you know, am guilty as well here. Like, I have a savings account. I do not donate every extra dime I have to charity. Even though, by the logic that is presented in this text, that's arguably what I should be doing. If, in fact, I give all that I have to the purposes that God has designed for me, I can trust that he will take care of me. Like, I shouldn't be a fool about it, I shouldn't waste anything, but that doesn't mean that I am also somehow protected by my savings account, by my insurance policies, by the, you know, various layers of security that I have paid for in order to protect myself. Health insurance will not save my life. God will save my life. Uh, savings accounts and, you know, financial stability will not protect me. God will protect me. And, again, like, it's hard to condemn any Christian who fails to live up to this standard when literally the Bible is showing us example after example after example of people who are failing to live up to this standard, even, you know, under the best of circumstances. What I want to emphasize is this is the ideal. This is what faith looks like. Like, many Christians talk about, you know, faith being able to move mountains, and they, they have a whole lot of lip service and a whole lot of platitudes about how great faith is. Like, you spend any time on Facebook with, you know, Christians as friends, and you will get inundated in memes that are, you know, relatively inspirational with nice backgrounds of, like, sunsets over the ocean, and, and it'll say something like, faith will set you free, and, you know, everybody feels very nice about it. But faith is work. That's what this text is emphasizing. That's what this test is showing us. The people of Israel have every reason to believe. It doesn't even need to be faith. They saw it with their own eyes. They have more evidence for God than we have of basic scientific phenomena in many cases. And yet they do not have faith. They are stuck in their habits of disbelief, of distrust. And so are we to some degree. But... The difference here is, if this is what faith is supposed to look like, then you can't settle for the platitudes. You can't let faith just be an easy thing. Faith is so much more potent, so much more powerful than that. And that same faith the size of a mustard seed that can move mountains basically presumes just a basic level of faith that basically nobody can achieve. Just the minimum level of faith in God would say, I do not need things like a house or money or possessions in any respect. And yet we cling to ours. And on some level, I think God understands that. Like, obviously, there's a lot in this in the laws that are going to be discussed that are about property and the way that they, it, it can be protected and how to sort of equi equitably treat it. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that when we see God testing his people here and later, the emphasis is they should be ready to drop it all at the drop of a hat. That's what Abraham did. That's what Moses does to some degree, even though Moses is way more clingy about it and way more resistant to the idea. All the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament are willing to live life day by day because they trust God to protect them with every passing day. It is not a matter of building a life for themselves that God is then blessing or giving you. That's usually not how God works. We have possessions, we have finances, we have wealth, we have security, we have all of these safety nets that we divide them for ourselves out of God's generosity. 
because God is willing to, you know, let us have that because it makes us more comfortable. But true faith is not comfortable. True faith has no stability. True faith has no security. True faith is letting God handle all of that. And I deeply respect the people who are willing to do that. In some cases, I would think of like missionaries going overseas, but even then, that's kind of messy because usually, at least in you know the United States, the only way that you can become a missionary is because you've raised enough money to go on your mission trip and you know pay for all of your expenses and so on and so forth. Whereas, honestly, a true missionary, by this kind of logic of faith, would be somebody who scrounges enough money together to you know buy a plane ticket overseas one way does so and then proceeds to work with what he finds there um that's faith that's you know letting god really take the reins of the of the carriage here letting him really take the wheel of the car um and again that doesn't mean being stupid like being reckless or irrational but there is a difference between you know catastrophic irresponsibility on the one hand and real motivated faith on the other trusting god that everything is going to be under control again i struggle with it i have my security nets i'm not perfect here i am pointing towards what i suspect perfection looks like it doesn't come along very often but the bible is full of these examples and gives us plenty of cases that show us what that looks like and notice, too, that this isn't just limited to food and water. Like, we get plenty of food and water examples. We get the first of many stories that involve, like, the Israelites being, eh, we're thirsty, and then Moses being directed by God to, like, strike a rock with his staff and water springs out from it, um, which you should pay close attention to because, again, this is a pattern that is being established, and that pattern will be disrupted in this case, and the disruption is every bit as important as the pattern itself. Um, but notice that across the board here, what we are seeing is faithlessness on the part of the people of Israel. Usually, you know, the unnamed masses of people, not so much Aaron or Moses specifically, the will, will get to Aaron and Moses, don't you worry. Um, but then God gives them specific instructions and by following those instructions, everything is made right. But the emphasis throughout is God is in charge of the situation. God is the one who is directly protecting you. It is not Moses. It is not Aaron. It is not your ingenuity in gathering up extra manna. It is not, you know, your ability to circumvent the rules that God has laid out. No, God has made these rules for a reason. He will bless you if you follow them. And if you do not follow them, it will be to your own misery. The people who stored up you know, too much manna or, or didn't bother to eat all of their portion on Tuesday are hungry that day and they don't get to eat the extra. It all goes bad. It is purely a matter of waste. But I also want to stress that this also connects to the defeat of Amalek. Like the guy who randomly just attacks these people while they're out in the wilderness. And apparently we get this, you know, quasi like weird miracle where as long as Moses's hands are raised, they win. But as if like his hands get tired and they go down, then they start to lose. Um, this is also a pattern that is going to be established, though not nearly as rigorous a one as like strike the rock and water comes out. 
Um, or for that matter, the manna and quail when, you know, the Israelites are especially hungry and complaining about it. Um, the emphasis here is there are going to be many enemies of the Israelites during this sojourn across the wilderness. And in fact, we're told by God that even the, the promised land, Israel, is in fact inhabited by Canaanites and people who, you know, the Israelites are not supposed to get along with. This too is a pattern that we will be examining more closely in the future. Um, but notice that the pattern is God gives us instructions or God like performs most of the, the, mir the miracle of victory all by himself. Like whether or not Moses' hands are raised would have no discernible scientific effect on whether or not the battle is going well or poorly for the Israelites. It is clearly God who is behind this. But notice that it is this superficial. That, you know, as weird as it is to think of, like, Moses' hands are getting tired and so he can't, like, keep them up the whole time. So we end up with, like, the two people on either side of him, like, literally holding up his hands. Like, Joshua, which, watch Joshua, he's going to be super important as this story goes on. Like, Joshua is literally, like, using both of his arms to keep Moses' hands aloft. Like, this is what it takes to win a battle when God is on your side. Now... On the one hand, we may look at this and say, that's silly. Why would God insist on this being, you know, the way that we're supposed to win battles? Why is this God's mechanism for helping the children of Israel? The silliness is the point here. Like, we did dramatic and wonderful. That was the ten plagues. Now we are talking about faith in circumstances that don't seem to warrant it. Like, I was literally talking to my students yesterday about Genesis 1-3, to which, again, back when we were talking about Genesis 1-3 to in this series, I emphasized that I didn't think that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was terribly efficacious, that it was a mere test and an act of obedience. These passages are why I tend to think that. Like, as much as the Garden of Eden is very much its own story, maybe deriving from an oral tradition totally independent from what we are seeing here, there does seem to be a fairly clear-cut pattern. God puts an arbitrary and seemingly ridiculous restriction in place and then basically stands back to see if we follow it or not. This is not necessarily something catastrophic that, you know, will end the Israelites' career the way that, you know, it brings sin into the world in Genesis 1 and 1 to 3. But at the same time, the sort of similarities are kind of difficult to ignore. If anything, it might be the other way around. Like, here is God sort of devising these arbitrary prohibitions in a less live-fire environment now that he has seen Adam and Eve fail that particular test. Maybe God is devising new tests to sort of better and more gradually prepare the children of Israel for what is about to be laid on them. Um, but whichever way you read it, there is certainly a parallelism, a similarity between these kinds of tests and in the way that God insists on his words being obeyed, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us, if not especially when it doesn't make sense to us. And I think the most obvious place and the most persistent place where we see this is in the Sabbath. Um, I note, like, again... Notice that the, the mana restrictions include that very careful, like, change in the rules on day six. Like, day six, you get twice as much, so on day seven, you don't collect any. 
The Sabbath rules have largely kind of not been a thing up until this point. Like, we remember back in Genesis 1-3 to where, like, God takes day 7 off to rest and thus declares this, like, the sacred day of rest going forward. Um, we've yet to see how that might, like, actually influence the lives of the people that we're talking about here. Here it becomes much more obvious. The day of rest is serving two pretty essential functions here. The first of those functions is it is also a test of faith. Like, notice that, you know, God specifically has these new uh, rules for what you are going to do on day seven with the manna. Like, and notice that this isn't even terribly difficult. Like, we're talking about you are not allowed to go out of your tent and gather the manna on day seven. Like, it's not, you know, you're going to till the land, you're going to plant the seed, and it's going to be backbreaking work, and it's like, so maybe there's some stuff that you can do and some stuff that you can't do. Like, we're literally going to get a passage later where God gets very angry because this one guy is, like, gathering sticks to make a fire on the Sabbath. This apparently counts. Like, just gathering food, even leaving your tent, seems to be totally forbidden on the day of rest. So, you know, again, reason number one for this to be the case is it is once again a test of faith. It is actually really difficult to not work, to not try and spend every waking moment, like, preparing for the future. This is unnatural, unhuman in some ways. Um, and we're going to see this throughout the text. Like, the Sabbath is frequently going to get abrogated. Um, later on, we'll see, like, God sets up this whole rule about the Jubilee year, where, like, every 49 years, you know, you just, you're doing your thing. But every 50th year, like, even the land has to rest. No crops will be planted. Nobody does any work. All the slaves go free. Like, it's supposed to be this huge celebratory thing. And yet, the emphasis here is God will protect you in that time. Like, here on day six, you are thinking to yourself, I'm supposed to gather twice as much, but how do I know that God will be there tomorrow? Well, God rests tomorrow. That's why he gave you the instructions to prepare. That's why you get to rest tomorrow as well. Resting requires a great deal of faith in some sense. Like, even on a very basic level, like, to let your guard down, to trust that no one is going to break into your house and murder you, to, you know, believe that, like, even if you do not work, you will be protected, that requires a great deal of faith. And so rest is a test of faith here. Now, the second and kind of more obvious part of the Sabbath restriction is it is rest. Like... This is a little bit fuzzier, I think, in this text, which is honestly kind of weird because it is the more obvious meaning of the Sabbath regulations. But God clearly prioritizes and values rest. Um, he rests himself, which is kind of weird. Like, again, I was talking to my students about it, and literally yesterday someone was like, why does God need to rest? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, why? I am not so familiar with God's whole, like, biochemistry or whatever the equivalent is to be able to say, you know, why God feels the need to rest. Um, but we certainly need the, or feel the need to rest and we are made in God's image. So it kind of makes sense that it would follow in some respect. God rests. And so we rest. 
Um, but what's significant about this is that, again, this is a priority. Like, this is a ancient Near East where the concept of rest is basically foreign to these people. I mean, we're about to get into the law and, you know, the business of the Ten Commandments and all the laws that are offered between, like, Exodus 20 and Exodus 25 or so. Um, and much of that, like, many scholars have spent time drawing uh, connections and distinctions between these laws as presented in the Old Testament and the laws of Hammurabi or other, like, ancient Near East laws like Hittite treaties and such. Rest is not a priority for most of these cultures. Like, they will set apart certain sanctified days that are meant for festivals or for celebrations. And you'll notice that God does that here, too. Like, he literally sets out rules for not one, but three different festivals. One at the beginning of the planting season, one for the Passover, and one at the end of the planting season. All of which are important, all of which have specific regulations, and, and basically all of them you cannot actually do work. Just because there are other responsibilities at stake. Um... But the idea of a dedicated day of rest, one out of every seven days, that's not normal by the standards of the ancient Near East. Like, this is not something the Greeks would have practiced. This is not something that the Romans practiced until Christianity and Zoroastrianism became especially popular. Um, this was a typically traditionally Jewish thing. And... It is significant to note that the Sabbath is one of those really obvious, really important, like, racial-slash-cultural characteristics that separate the Jews from everyone around them. And, I mean, to this day, that's the case. Like, people, you know, make jokes about how Chick-fil-A or, you know, does not actually have their businesses open on Sundays. If only because, like, back in the 1940s and 50s, it was fairly normal for a business to be entirely closed on Sunday. But the idea that an international corporation like Chick-fil-A could possibly persist in its business strategy while also taking a day off for everyone involved, it's unheard of. You know, McDonald's doesn't do that, Burger King doesn't do that, Wendy's doesn't do that, Popeye's doesn't do that. Like, any other place, they will just hire people for minimum wage and just cause them to work, like, seven days a week. Who cares? It means it's convenient for everybody else. Chick-fil-A says no. And on some level, people give them flack about that. I honestly respect the crap out of that decision. That's what is being talked about here that is the kind of faith that this book keeps insisting upon that's what god wants to see it probably would be profitable for chick-fil-a to open on sundays they probably would make more money maybe they could you know pay their employees better or maybe their ceos would make more money take your pick as far as how to sort of explain this phenomenon and why it might be ethically better for them to be open on that day but it doesn't matter this is what Kierkegaard talks about as the teleological suspension of the ethical, and I don't want to get too deep into that, but I do think that he is dead right when he comes to examining what the Bible says about faith and what faith actually looks like in practice. This is not easy. This is work. This requires a profound amount of trust. To be able to let your guard down once every seven days requires a great deal of trust especially in a, so, in a social circumstance that does not admit of that. Like, admittedly, for most white-collar jobs today, yeah, they do get weekends off. That's fairly typical. That 
tradition as established in the 40s and 50s and earlier has not yet died for people rich enough and comfortable enough to be able to, you know, enjoy those positions. But it isn't normal anymore. And it is noteworthy that those same people who only work nine to five, five days a week tend to be the same people who tell others working at the lower end of the chain that they do have to show up on Saturdays and Sundays and they do have to work at odd hours of the day and night and they do need to be there for graveyard shifts or swing shifts or, you know, whatever their schedule must require of them. That isn't faith. That's comfort. That's doing what is convenient rather than doing what is required. So as much as I might, you know, laud Chick-fil-A for closing Sundays, on the other hand, I tend to think that its business practices on the whole do not look godly. That they are, at the end of the day, more profit-driven than they could afford to be. And that's the key here. Like, going forward from this discussion of faith and the Sabbath and sort of like how the Israelites are required to behave as they're wandering around Israel, we very quickly get into the laws. Um, and this is the first, like, actual law passage we've hit uh, between Genesis uh, 20 and 24. Um, it's also one of the most important ones because it does include the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Um, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about law over the course of this series. Like, once we hit Leviticus, it's literally going to be nothing but law for a little while. Um, so it's worth noting that the laws we are going to spend some significant time examining and interpreting. And on the one hand, this gives us a lot of insight into what who God is and what God values. While on the other hand, it is pretty easy to sort of extrapolate from the circumstances surrounding these people at this time to greater universals that may or may not be appropriate. What I mean to say here is that now that we are entering a new genre of the Pentateuch, we also need to like adjust our hermeneutic accordingly. Um, obviously, the law is designed for the people of Israel. Like, this is the context that we are given the law. Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai while literally the entire population of Israel as rescued from Egypt is, like, clustered around the bottom of the mountain waiting for him to come back because they're, like, too scared to go up the mountain and God has specifically told them they're not allowed to and, like, they've got to be super holy just to be anywhere near the mountain because God is literally, like, hanging out on the top of the mountain with, with Moses. Um, but notice that these are laws just for the Israelites. On the one hand, they should give us a pretty good indication of what God values and what God thinks is important for his people to follow. Thus, we will get some pretty good insights into what constitutes justice from God's perspective, as well as what constitutes holiness from God's perspective. But at the same time, we should also note about the stuff that we find here in Exodus 20 to 24, as well as what we find in Levitical laws, as well as what we find in Deuteronomy, they are, at the end of the day, internal laws. Like, I realize that this is kind of a weird thing to say because all laws are internal laws in one respect. Like, obviously, when the United States government passes a law, that law is not intended to be interpreted or, you know, taken seriously by, say, you know, England or Nigeria or South Africa or China. Um, but at the same time, notice that Christians nowadays tend to forget about this. They tend to think that the laws that God put down for the Jews here in Exodus, as well as Leviticus and Deuteronomy, are meant to be some kind of universal laws 
to be held over the heads of everyone for all times. And that anyone who doesn't obey these laws is, at the end of the day, like sinning against God or engaged in some kind of rebellion against God or disobeying the natural order of the universe. This is a really fine line to walk. And we're going to have to be very careful about where that is true, that these are natural laws that God is enforcing, and these are widely considered, you know, sins on some sort of cosmic level, versus the stuff that God has specifically put in place for his people at this particular moment. Like, we talked quite a bit about how in Genesis... Many of the patriarchs do not follow even the Ten Commandments in some respects. Like, we've got Jacob and his incredibly torrid family life with his, you know, two wives and two handmaids who he's also sleeping with. And, like, 12 sons who may even try to, like, murder each other at various times. We talked about how Cain is this really weird aberration while, you know, he does in fact violate the law. He is at the same time protected by God. We get even Abraham, who, like, lets down his guard at one point and sleeps with Hagar and thus complicates the entire inheritance business. Like, all of that suggests that God is pretty forgiving of people who do not necessarily follow these natural cosmic laws. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, against the hardcore dispensationalists who insist that, like, there are no rules until God sets down those rules that Sodom and Gomorrah was apparently just wicked enough to warrant destruction for reasons that may in fact elude us. Like, we are in fact inclined to see the sin of Sodom as, you know, they were gay, but that's, like I argued, not clear. There was a lot going on in Sodom. It was not clear what specifically the sin was that caused God to wipe them out. If anything, it seemed to be more likely that it was just the sheer preponderance of evil um, that was, in fact, offending God's sensibilities. But if we point to what specifically does God seem to value, we're going to have to kind of simultaneously look at the stuff that God was punishing outside of these laws, as well as what these laws tend to emphasize and which of these laws tend to be prioritized over others. Like, the Ten Commandments gets a lot of publicity. People tend to think that this is the foundational text for God's law, that these laws are the sort of cosmic, you know, super important laws that God puts in place, not just for his people, but for all people at all times. And I tend to think that there's some good justification for that. Like, the contextualization here is pretty broad. Like, Moses literally goes up the mountain, and this is the first thing that God tells him the people of Israel must do. We're even given a bit of a, a like, interlude here, like a separating moment between the Ten Commandments and then the further laws about servants and strife and violence and property and so on and so forth. Like, Moses apparently comes down from the mountain at some point. Like, we get the passage in chapter 20, 21 to 26, where it's like, okay, so the people are standing a ways off while Moses is apparently re receiving all of these Ten Commandments. And then, like, God draws him back up, and, like, that's apparently something separate. Um, the very indication that there is an interlude here where there isn't at any other point until later in chapter 31, where Moses actually does come down, down, down the mountain and finds everybody, like, totally freaking out and losing their minds um that indicates to me that the ten commandments are meant to be set apart 
um, that they are meant to have some kind of superior significance over many of the other laws that we're going to talk about. Additionally, there's the fact that they're repeated twice. Like in Deuteronomy 20, we're go or in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, I believe, it's either 5 or 10, um, we get them repeated, practically verbatim. So obviously these Ten Commandments are the, the really important keystone of the entire Jewish legal system. Like, if God wants there to be some laws over others, it's going to be set apart in some way like this. But again, it's not always clear whether or not these laws are meant for everyone everywhere or whether they are meant for just this group of people at this particular time. Like, even the laws that we see in the Ten Commandments, we obviously tend to prioritize the early ones, tend to think that those are the most important ones, but they also tend to be the ones that are most obviously specific for the Jewish people. So on the one hand, you've got, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Like, this one's obviously a huge deal. And it has to do with pride, and we're going to get, like, the backup with, you know, you're not going to make any graven images, any gods that could theoretically compete with God, as well as, you know, not bowing down to those gods, not taking the Lord's name in vain. This all seems to be a pretty big package deal, the first three or four commandments, all dealing with God's set-apartness and God's uniqueness as the God of the Jews. Now... If that's true, though, then presumably God would not have any patience or sympathy or care for anyone who violates these rules even outside the Jewish people, i.e. any person ascribing to literally any other religion on the face of the earth. And I think that tends to be kind of complicated. Like, on the one hand, yes, it's if, in fact, God is, in fact, the one true God, the God above all of the other gods, or, by, or contrary-wise, the only actual God, and all of the other gods are just wooden stone, or, or however it's emphasized later on in the text, um, whichever of those is the case, then presumably God wouldn't be interested in bringing into the fold anyone who was practicing any other religion or believing in any other gods. But that's clearly not the case if, in fact, you believe in Christian teaching. Because literally, like, days into Christianity being a thing, after Jesus rises into, into heaven, God's like, okay, so bring the Gentiles in. And Peter's like, are you sure about this? And God's like, yep, I'm sure. So apparently that's not necessarily a disqualifying characteristic. It's more a matter of being right with God now that you know that he is here. Like, ignorance seems to be a pretty legitimate excuse for many people across the Bible. And they can be saved. They can be redeemed in their ignorance. Like, yes, there's the whole natural revelation thing. We're not going to talk about that because that is not within our purview here. But what I want to emphasize is that God very clearly is saying, you know, you will have no other gods before me, not necessarily because it is wrong to have other gods, but because if these people are going to be representing God, they obviously can't show divided loyalties. These are the priestly nation that God has been talking about. These are the people who are the successors of Abraham, who will be blessed, who everyone who blesses them will be blessed, and everyone who curses them will be cursed. They are going to be the saving force to all the nations. They can't walk around with some other gods 
you know, body like on a stick or something. They can't wave some other god's flag around. They can't, you know, in secret worship idols made of wood and stone. If these are supposed to be the messengers of the one true god, the god whose name will not be spoken, then they can't very well, you know, convince anyone of their enthusiasm or their loyalty if, in fact, they're worshiping other gods on the side. This is a distinctly Jewish characteristic because the Jews have a distinctly greater responsibility as God's chosen people. So, on the one hand, we look at, you know, passages like this, you will have no other gods before me, you will not make graven images, you will not take the Lord's name in vain, all of that, as much as we might say, those are, like, supposed to be universal laws for everybody at all times, and... I suspect that any Christian or Jew or God himself would argue, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Worship the one God who is actually good and efficacious. It is still not necessarily the thing that will damn you if you do not, because you haven't heard about God or because, you know, you've been mistaught or like misinformed about who God actually is. This is a uniquely Jewish restriction here in this context. That's the way we're supposed to read it. That's the way that they almost certainly understand it. And we will see that contextualized later as well. The Jews aren't going to just straight up kill anyone who doesn't believe in their God. That's not the order here. Like, there are going to be specific people who God tells them, you can go kill them, or you are not allowed to have treaties with them, or you are not allowed to hang out with them. But the restriction is always because the Jews themselves would be in danger of straying from God. So... The fact that you do not believe in God is not, for the Jews and for the Christians by extension, cause to go around killing people. That's what I want to emphasize here. Not believing in God is not a punishable offense. This is an internal law for a group of people already committed to following God and who have abundant evidence of God's reality. That's important context. Now, we also get in this group of laws the one about respecting the Sabbath and keeping it holy. This is, I suspect, where we start transitioning. Because on the one hand, this is very obviously a, this is a sign of being a Jewish person. This is a sign of following God. This is a sign, you know, in the same way that God is, like, testing them. But at the same time, because this isn't a commandment that has to deal with rest, it has greater application than just... This is a thing that you do because you are following God, and God is, you know, bestowing you with blessings, therefore you must respond in kind. This seems more complicated, or at least the edge of something more complicated. Um, the ones that follow, though, are incredibly practical. Honor your mother and father, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, etc. Like, these are laws that have generally been adopted by everyone as being kind of wise. Um, like, when, in fact, American citizens write, you know, the Ten Commandments and put them in, you know, marble plinths at various places around this country... It's usually these laws that they are emphasizing more. This is the basis of a decent code of morality. But I think that is, in fact, also a misinterpretation here. Like, as much as, you know, there is this kind of assumption that um, 
like God is sad when people murder each other or God is upset when people steal from each other or, you know, by not following the basic Ten Commandments, you are doing something that offends God or upsets him in some way. Like this is the way it is often framed by Christians. I really don't think that's why God lays down the Ten Commandments that he does. I think we're looking at it backwards on this one. Like, these are the same laws that do appear in something like the Code of Hammurabi. These are the same laws that everybody in the vicinity agrees are, is just basic human decency. Not stealing, not killing, not committing adultery. I suspect that the reason why God then puts them into the Ten Commandments is because they're so obvious. Like, this is not meant to be revolutionary. This isn't even necessarily God insisting that you fly his flag. That's what the earlier commandments are for. This is, if you are going to fly God's flag, you have to achieve a minimum basic decency level. Like, you cannot also go around violating the basic assumed laws of civilized society, even at this early stage of its development. If literally the Babylonians can figure out that stealing from each other causes civilization and civilized society to break down, then you better not steal from people if you're supposed to be going around representing God. Like, this isn't necessarily fly God's flag language or law, but it is, again, like, you gotta do step one before you can get to step three. Step three is having no other gods, you know, following God, the God who has rescued you from, ex from uh, Egypt exclusively. Step one is don't steal from each other, don't murder each other, don't sleep with each other's wives, don't basically, you know, violate or abrogate the basic fabric of society in short. So again, I tend to think that Christians are right to follow these, and even right to insist on this being basic morality, but not as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a mirror of much of what civilized society, social law looks like in this day and age. They're not something revolutionary, they're not actually the keystone of an entire civilized morality. It assumes that that's already there. This is just please don't be a jerk to each other. Do not wreck one another's lives for no good reason, in short. Um, now that said, it's worth noting that at least a couple of these laws are differently contextualized today. Um, like, obviously, no civilized society on the face of the earth today legitimizes murder in any respect. Um, but one might have questions about stealing if, in fact, one is asking questions like, is it okay to steal food to feed your starving family? One might have questions about adultery in a society that largely assumes that adultery is not something that should be punishable with prison time or death. Um, but that assumes that sexual sin is to be taken care of within the confines of one's own household, one's own moral, you know, restrictions. It's like the adultery restriction seems a little out of place here in a society where polygamy and or polyamory or like the bonds of a uh, sexual relationship are more liberally understood than they were in the time that's being written about here. Um, in both of these cases, though, I think that there's at least some extenuating circumstances. Um, 
As much as God does say, thou shalt not steal, you'll notice that many of the laws to follow in the discussion of like further chapters in Exodus, as well as what happens in Leviticus and Numbers, very much emphasizes that in under God's law, there shouldn't be cause to steal. Like, notice that he makes specific restrictions. Like, he says you can't pick your 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 field clean when you are harvesting. You have to leave, like, certain amounts of, of crops up so poor people or the homeless can literally find food as they're walking around. Presumably, if we have reached the point that a person is stealing to feed their family, something else in God's social order has broken down pretty dramatically. Um, the idea of stealing as being a necessary prerequisite to survival is itself offensive to God. Like, there's plenty of other laws that indicate that, you know, other steps should, should be taken to protect people who are otherwise in danger of, of starvation or suffering in this way. As for the adultery... I should emphasize, because again, this is one that Christians get really uppity about. Um, like, not necessarily adultery specifically. Christians have kind of given up that fight, from what I can tell, which I have no idea why that is the case. Like, why Christians somehow insist on not allowing gay people to marry, but have somehow given up the fight on adultery being a legal matter. Like, again, I don't presume to understand all Christians. They don't make sense to me. As far as the priorities in the Bible are concerned, this should theoretically be a much bigger sticking point for Christians. Like, I do not see many billboards that argue that, you know, makes adultery illegal. Like, I, I think I have seen one. I think in Texas I ran across something that was along those lines at one point. Probably right next to a billboard for, like, an adult, you know, video shop or something, because that's just how Texas seems to roll. Um, but that's kind of what I want to emphasize. Like, if, in fact, Christians feel obligated to go around policing other people's sexuality... God pretty clearly emphasizes certain sexual sins over others, and this is one of those. Like, if there is any sexual sin that God really does seem to be hung up about, it is adultery. But at least part of the reason why this is so complicated is because adultery here, in this society, in this time period, in this context, is as much an economic and familial sin as it is a sexual one. God isn't necessarily prohibiting adultery because he wants to make sure you have sex with the same person at all times, though obviously there is precedent for that in Genesis 2. God seems to be forbidding adultery because not only does it violate the stuff that's, go that's being talked about in Genesis 2, but it is also literally corroding the fabric of society as we know it. Again, given the fact that the society values blood lineage as being the foundation of how property is passed from person to person, you pretty much can see how adultery is not just a threat to some kind of weird sexual purity sense, but also the sense of economic, you know, passing on of generations, as well as, like, social familial order. I'm not sure God is particularly upset because people are passing their wives around, I think that it's much more a matter of people are sleeping with other people's wives and thus causing the entire, you know, vi the cycles of violence or the cycles of economic undoing that become complicated here. For that and for other reasons, I do want to kind of stress when we encounter these sexual sins that it is complicated 
Because you can't very well map the adultery of here in, you know, like Exodus 20 to the adultery of today. In that respect, the Christians are absolutely right to not be harping on the issue of adultery so much. Like, whether or not they think it's a lost cause or whether or not it's something else, it, it's not entirely clear. But what I would emphasize is that the what constituted adultery here in you know, the 15th century BCE or whenever this is, was not the same crime as what constitutes adultery today. Like, yes, sleeping with another person's wife will in fact cause havoc in their personal life in all likelihood. But adultery as between two pairs of consenting adults who decide to swap wives out of some sort of culturally acceptable practice versus adultery here where it is literally violating the fabric of society and we are assuming an act of, if not violence, then an act of coercion, that's a very different animal. So let's just not try and understand specifically how that's supposed to translate here, if only because there is so little context for this. Again, we get thou shalt not commit adultery right after thou shalt not kill, right before thou shalt not steal, with very little else describing it. If, in fact, we are supposed to understand the problem with adultery, we're not giving a lot of evidence here. That problem is assumed and therefore must be tied to its own time. Likewise with stealing and killing and so on and so forth. Obviously, if we, you know, come up with some sort of technology in the future that causes us to bring people back from the dead and see murder as not necessarily all that damaging to a person's well-being, we might have to reevaluate the thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill abrogation as well. Not necessarily because it's any less wrong, but because its context and its consequences have changed so dramatically. With that in mind, too, I want to once again sort of draw attention to the fact that Christians are usually very grumpy about sexual sins, and yet the Bible really isn't. Like, as much as we do have our first four chapters of straight-up laws... Notice that very few of them, if any, have anything to do with sexuality. We get the adultery restriction here in the Ten Commandments, which, again, like we talked about, is pretty complicated. We also get the fairly cryptic passage in Exodus 21-22, where if men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will pay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. I, that's kind of it here. Like, these are fascinating passages, do not get me wrong, and I have often used that passage, Exodus 21-22, to argue that the Bible is not so hard on abortion as contemporary Christians seem to think, which is a very complicated discussion in its own right, and I do want to circle back around to that. What I want to emphasize here is that over and over we are seeing passages that are emphasizing you're not supposed to murder each other. You're supposed to speak, treat your servants fairly. You're supposed to treat your slaves fairly. Even if you do take slaves among the Hebrews, you're supposed to release them after seven years. You're supposed to like be responsible if your ox hurts somebody, especially if somebody warned you about it beforehand. Like there is a notable emphasis on like the difference between negligence versus an accident here. Um, 
we have all of this stuff about the Sabbath and we have all of this stuff about like God's protections and, su and such, but sex, sex isn't anything that God's terribly interested in here. Honestly, the most telling passage about sexuality in this entire section is probably when we get this weird, like totally uncontextualized command about God is coming to Mount Sinai tomorrow. So none of the men are allowed to come unto their women that night. Like that's the really weird passage here about sex. Like that's the only explicitly sexual law or restriction we see. And it is very contextual and has much more to do with the holiness stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit, more than anything to do with illegality or somehow offending God in some way. Like, apparently sexuality makes you unclean before God. This is something that's going to be reiterated elsewhere in other legal passages when we do, in fact, find passages that are specifically about sexuality. But what I want to emphasize is if Exodus 20 to 24 is supposed to be some kind of preeminent law, some kind of, like, profoundly central legal like cornerstone to God's entire legal system as we're going to describe it, then clearly sex isn't one of the preoccupations here. Like for contemporary Christianity, it seems like the only things they're interested in is sex, that it is all about abortion and all about homosexuality. And neither of these seem to be huge priorities for God here in this passage. When we do, in fact, get to passages that talk more explicitly about homosexuality, you'll notice that they're going to be very few and far between. God is going to spend a lot of time outlining things like, this is how the tabernacle is supposed to be designed. Like, literally, chapter after chapter is about just the pomegranates and the, the like, way that the candlestick is supposed to be made and, you know, the fact that you can't make an altar out of hewn stone for some reason. Um... That's a much bigger priority here. Like, we get one unexplained passage, you know, when God shows up tomorrow, make sure that you haven't had sex with your wife the night before, or else that'll apparently upset him. It will possibly cause you to die. Like, that's, again, a holiness thing, which is separate from the this is how you're supposed to behave with other people thing. This is complicated. It's messy. And any Christian today who presumes to understand God's will about sexuality so clearly as to be able to go around and say, you are hated by God because of your sexual practices, that's insane. Like, insane. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that this is the case. God has some very particular specific sexual restrictions on these particular people at this particular time because this is how one is supposed to conduct the oneself before God. But at no point in any of this book is there any indication that the Jews are supposed to go around and like punish people for their sexual misconduct according to Jewish standards. No, this is internal law. This is law for the Jews to execute among themselves and for themselves for the purposes of explicitly distinguishing themselves as God's chosen people. If you want to be a priest of God, in short, this is the code you have to follow. But what I must emphasize about these laws 
is that they are supposed to be internally enforced. Yes, we can see some of the characteristics of God's behavior through them. And if we look at God's behavior through the vision of this law, what we will note is that God is very preoccupied with fairness, justice, economic equality, some kind of welfare for the poor, and basically a noted responsibility of anyone who typically violates this stuff. If you have been told that your ox is dangerous and you let it break free again and it kills somebody, you are guilty of murder. Like, line after line is devoted to these kind of edge cases, this kind of justice. Nothing by comparison about sexuality, about the sexual relationships that these people have, and certainly nothing that indicates anywhere that Jews are going to be like contracted by God to hunt down gay people and kill them. That's not their job. They are not the world's police. They are the world's priests. And that's how Christians are supposed to behave as well. We are ministers. We are helpers of a sick society. But what makes that society sick isn't necessarily something we are equipped to diagnose, except in so far as it is a lack of Christ in their lives. So, yeah. Etching the Ten Commandments and putting them in the town square isn't the worst idea in the world, but it is a misinterpretation of their function, at least as far as I understand the relationship between Christians and the civilized society that they reside in. As far as going around and telling people they are going to hell because of what our Bible tells us, that seems to be a very misguided way to understand how this text is supposed to be working. But some of that is well beyond our scope for what we're talking about here. What I would emphasize is that if a Christian is going to demonstrate that they are a Christian, it shouldn't look so much like going around getting into other people's faces and telling them that they're going to hell without the saving power of Jesus. What I would call upon Christians to look at here is look at how much God wants you to take care of the poor. Look at how much God wants you to be fair in your dealings with other people. Look at how much God wants you to prioritize rest and giving others rest as well. Look at how much God wants you to be held responsible for your actions. That's clearly a priority. The economic relationships are all over this passage, and we will see them elsewhere as well. And this is not just a Pentateuch thing elsewhere, either. Like, if you read the prophets, if you read the minor prophets especially, they are very keen to emphasize these economic relationships. Very keen to emphasize the injustices that are being perpetrated on the most vulnerable members of their society. These are the people who aren't insisting on sexual purity, but are in fact insisting on freeing slaves after seven years, which could very easily be equated to paying people fair wages, making sure that poor people are in fact fed and housed, and being willing to sacrifice lots of the stuff that are luxuries in your life in order to do that. If you want to talk about Christian morality... I tend to think that that is far more central because it's something that God prioritizes so much greater. Yes, the Ten Commandments are a big deal, but the Ten Commandments are a big deal because they're so basic. 
because they are supposed to be step one in the 10-step process of making yourself right with God. This is not the be-all and end-all of morality. These are not the fundamental laws on which the entire system operate. It is the, assume, the assumed laws, the assumptions, and yet we hold them up as this high moral standard. Like, yes, Jesus is going to adopt and transform them in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't want to de-emphasize that. But Jesus is doing that specifically to emphasize how basic those laws actually are. And how, if we are to emphasize how important these rules are, we need to expand their scope. We need to look not just at living without stealing, but living without desiring to steal. The do not covet as the weirdest and strangest of the commandments now becomes the most important. And notice that one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. For many of these laws, these are very enforceable. If somebody kills, you kill them in response. If somebody steals, you punish them accordingly. If somebody commits adultery, you punish them for that. But how do you punish someone for coveting, for desiring what somebody else has? Note, this is kind of our glimpse in the Ten Commandments of how this is beyond just the interactions in everyday life. Many Christians have understood the Ten Commandments as to have some kind of internal or mental bent to them. This is not just about policing your actions, but policing your thoughts, policing your desires, policing who you are as a person in some sense. And if you read it that way, that's probably a good foundation for a lot of the Christian morality that is to come. As Jesus will emphasize, God wants your hearts to be right in him. And many of the Jews are going to emphasize this as well. Clearly, these commandments are baseline. But that last one, thou shalt not covet, indicates that they are supposed to point to something more. That there is an interpretation here that suggests not just do not steal, do not kill, bare minimum decency behavior, but do not want to steal, do not want to kill. That being a member of God's society means transcending all of these desires in some way. And just as we are coming to expect manna from heaven because God can literally produce food for us at any moment, therefore maybe not counting so much on our own ingenuity or you know sneaking around behind other people's backs in order to get things like food and clothing and shelter. What we are seeing here in the Ten Commandments is at first, in the first several commandments, God saying, this is what it looks like to be my follower. And the following commandments, we get, this is the basic minimum requirements for decency, which is required to be my follower. And here in commandment 10, we see a glimpse of what it actually looks like to follow. Not necessarily the behaviors that are observable, but that in following God, many priorities that you once deemed important will cease to be so. If you follow God, you will no longer want, because God will provide. Because anything you could desire, God will give you or determine that you do not need it or should not have it. And therefore, trusting God includes not being discontent with the circumstances you find yourselves in. 
Yes, there are many laws here, prioritizing things that God apparently seems to think are very important, most of which are economic, most of which are about justice and fairness, most of which, uh, like, establish a baseline level of wealth and well-being for everybody in God's kingdom. But if you want to talk about what good moral behavior actually looks like, it's about being hard on yourself. It's about ceasing to police others and policing your mind and your thoughts and your will and your desires. It's about self-control, in short. Good Christians do not want things. They do not hunger for what is not right for them. And good Jews don't either. This is what is very much being emphasized here in the Pentateuch. Now that said, I do want to touch briefly on that passage in Exodus 21. Again, I've talked about this in my abortion lecture, so I don't want to like harp on this a lot. But I do want to emphasize that again, like if there is some sort of grand takeaway about abortion from this passage, it's that it is clearly not as obvious as God deems every fetus to be on par with a human being full grown. Like, notice the way that this law is worded. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. This and several of the other laws would seem to indicate that while murder is punishable with death, the death of a young child or even a fetus is not considered fully human yet and is therefore able to be compensated with money. This does not mean that abortion should somehow be legal under the Christian mindset or that Christians should feel comfortable having abortions, not by any extent of the imagination. But what it does mean is that that fundamental pre philosophical presupposition that most pro-lifers tend to be hung up on, namely that life begins at conception, that the life of a fetus is the same as that of the person carrying it or any person in general, doesn't hold water here in the Bible. At the very least, it's more complicated than that. At the very worst, we have questions about it. Um... So this is not something that is worth, you know, sacrificing the entire, like, Christian cultural cachet in order to win. This is not our fight, necessarily. Like, as much as I am very much emphasizing that these are internal laws for Christians to practice in their homes, among their families, in their churches, etc., and not necessarily in the social governmental sphere, which, again, you can chalk up to my hermeneutics or you can chalk up to my policy about reconciling my faith with my citizenship, I agree. This is a complicated issue. It's also one that is not talked about very often. Like, on a very basic level, when I started this out whole discussion out by saying this is going to be complicated hermeneutical waters, I did so knowing full well that it's also something that probably should be discussed. That on a basic level, Christians do not understand how to square their faith with their citizenhood, with their responsibilities as a Christian, as a person believing in Christ under God, with how they are supposed to 
or act in a civilized society where that godhood is not necessarily recognized. Now, for many Christians, I recognize that their solution is we should live in a Christian nation. We should make our laws and our society conform as much as possible to the laws and society discussed here in Exodus or in Leviticus or in Numbers or elsewhere throughout the Bible. And I think that that is very wrong-headed. For most of, for the entirety of the Bible, from page one to the to its conclusion in Revelation, we see only fleeting glimpses of an actual God-ruled society. Some of that we see here in the laws that God himself lays down to people in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Some of it we see in Revelation when we see that God, like, actually, for a certain amount of time, lives among us. But there is no indication anywhere else that Christians and Jews are responsible to convert the world around them into their own legal perspectives somehow before they convert them into their own theological perspective. The assumption throughout the Bible is that our responsibility is to convert others to the faith, first and foremost. Jew, for Jews, that is, you know, if anyone lives among you, you have to turn them into a Jew themselves. Like, you cannot harbor people from other faiths in your communities. You are supposed to live apart from them. Like, to the point that God even goes so far as to say in the coming passages that you have to exterminate the Canaanites down to the last woman and child because you cannot be trusted to cohabitate with people who believe in a different God. Therefore, if anyone is going to come into your towns and live among you, they will have to be converted first, and then they will be expected to follow your laws. But for Christians especially, it is very much emphasized historically and just in the New Testament at large, these are the underdogs. These are a handful of schismatic weirdos of a schism that the Roman Empire was already kind of grumpy with in the first place. They have no political power, no authority to change anything at a higher level for them, and their entire purpose is just to survive as long as possible while communicating the truth of the gospel to as many people as they can. At no point is there any indication that Christians are supposed to go out and say, you are all sinners, you are all evil, you are all bad because you are committing homosexuality or because you are conducting abortions. Like, that is not the message here. So if we are in fact living in a society that is so predominantly Christian, where Christians are in fact making laws and have political power, like even on some truly rudimentary level like we see here in our democracy, we cannot look for the to the Bible for how we are supposed to behave in these situations. There's no precedent for it. Like, the idea of Jews or Christians being the people in a position of power, being able to legislate for non-Christians, does not come about until Constantine and the Roman Empire in its last stages, as well as the medieval world and the Byzantine Empire and all of these historical circumstances. If we are looking to anything, for how should Christians conduct themselves in a democracy, a pluralistic democracy at, at that, the Bible isn't going to be the place where we find precedence. We can use the Bible to, you know, guide our own lives for sure, but we can't use it as a truncheon to force other people into line. 
both the Bible and the Quran are ready to admit that coer conversion by coercion is ineffective. Like, you cannot just impose laws on others and expect them to change to the faith. No. Faith comes first, then law. That's my hermeneutic for understanding my responsibilities as a Christian under democracy, and under American democracy at that. So with that in mind, I don't think we are right to take the laws that we find here in Exodus and assume that we are supposed to impose them on everyone. I will admit, some of these laws seem pretty cosmic in their orientation. They do give us glimpses of what God wants from us. But that's what God wants from us, the people who already believe in God, the people who are already trying to impress God, the people who are trying to fly his flag. If God has laws that are so basic and fundamental as to the organization of the universe, if God does consider certain behaviors or certain practices truly unnatural or abominable, as we will find in Leviticus, it is not on us to enforce them. And it is certainly not on us to extrapolate what is natural and what is not just from a couple of chance passages. God is not so clear as that here. And if anything, we Christians should remember, it is not ours to judge. Vengeance is mine, says God. He will repay. We just have to make sure as many people know that this is the God they're dealing with as possible before that happens. Our job is not to condemn. Ours is to warn and protect. We are supposed to tell as many people as possible that God is out there, that God will help them, that God will bless them, and that all they have to do is follow him. It will then be up to them, personally policing themselves, and up to their priorities as we tell them what we think is necessary for our church, our convictions, our society to work inside of the doors of our church, our ecclesia. That's where we can do policing. And even then, we should be so cautious every step of the way. God is working in the lives of many people across this country and across the world. The last thing we want is to be interfering with that. We need to show God's love. We need to show God's justice. We need to show God's goodness. We need to show his mercy, his long-suffering, his forgiveness. All of the characteristics that are so important to the book of Exodus here. That's the message we need to convey. And if we are mixing that message with judgment and vengeance and anger and prejudice and bigotry and bias, we're doing way more harm than good. So if you want to know my hermeneutic, how do I square my faith with my politics? My conviction is that I need to show love as a Christian and justice as a citizen. If I can do both of those, then it will be very clear to everyone whose flag I'm flying. So if I am seeing people, Christians, behaving unjustly, then that's not Christian behavior. And if I see people condemning others unmercifully, then that's not Christian behavior.
I am looking for leaders who reflect my values, who will practice justice and in times of uncertainty, practice mercy. So I vote for the people who I tend to think reflect those virtues first and foremost. That, I think, is what all Christians should be doing. If a politician stands up and says, I will enforce the laws of Exodus today in America in 2023, I am suspicious. Incredibly suspicious. Especially when they seem to think that those laws of Exodus are the ones about sex that I'm not finding here. Christians aren't supposed to police sexuality. Christians aren't supposed to police virtually anything. If they are going to wield their political power in a way that is supposed to be at, you know, in concert with their faith, then that priority should be on justice and mercy, not judgment. All right. We could probably talk about the hermeneutics of this quite a lot more. Again, I wish some Christians who actually, like, were legit theologians and had, you know, the, the position and the authority, the respect of their peers, I would call upon them to do that. Because, you know, me and my hundred followers, that's not what I'm here for. Like, my job is not to outline some elaborate systematic theology or explain how we as Christians and democracy are supposed to, you know, demonstrate our faith in everyday life. I think this is actually super obvious, and yet so many people are missing the ball here. I suspect because at least some Christians are hung up on the power of, you know, being courted by the Republican Party and turning their faith into a couple of key issues. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of Christians out there who are legit afraid. Like, Christians who, you know, are in positions of theological authority who prefer not to discuss these political issues because it will unnecessarily rile people up or, you know, cause dissension in the ranks. What I would argue is that if people are disagreeing with justice and mercy, there is no dissension in the ranks. There are just wolves among the sheep here. We have non-Christians in our midst. People who claim the faith and practice something completely different. A Christian who hates is no Christian. And the fact that we let them into the church without any question is an indication that our priorities are really, really far off the mark. I know people who are struggling with sexual sin as determined by Christian morality who would love to find the compassion and caring and mercy that is called for in a Christian congregation. People who need that kind of love and attention and respect. They are not finding it in churches. They are not seeking it in churches. Because churches have made it abundantly clear that they will not meet that kind of love, respect, attention, mercy, and caring. That's really unfortunate. That is the sort of thing that makes me mad as Jesus getting ready to scourge the temple. That's the sort of totally abominable misuse of our power and our religious flag as I can come up with. And I imagine that those Christians will be met by God at some point in the future it will not go unnoticed. So again, if there are Christians out there, if you are listening to this podcast and you have a platform, 
let's talk about this. Even if we don't necessarily come to concrete conclusions about whether we should be pro-choice or pro-life, whether or not, like, we should be, you know, in favor of gay marriage or not, like, I'm not interested in specific issues. I'm talking about the basic philosophy here. What is the hermeneutic, our way of reading the Bible that helps us to understand what is a Christian's responsibility in the contemporary world? Because there's just not enough people talking about this. Not enough people coming up with a cogent understanding of how we are supposed to map the laws of 2,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, onto our contemporary world, our contemporary life. Understanding Christianity today is a really difficult, complicated business, and it's not going to be solved with just sermons directly from the Bible or just political polemic or just, you know, evangelical inspirational quotes. It's going to require some real hard work, some rolling up of sleeves and getting hands dirty. I am, to some degree, willing to because I don't have a whole heck of a lot to lose on this one. You know, worst case scenario, I alienate a patron or two and I lose some money on a monthly basis. But this is my conviction. This is what I believe. And I suspect that by saying it, I will honestly win more, you know, win more adherence than I will lose. I believe that this is also what God wants us to do. But again, I'm overstepping myself a bit here. At the very least, we should be talking about this. It can't just be all Christians are Republicans full stop. That's just gross. Moving on, there is one more thing that I do want to talk about before I call it for today, and that's holiness. Again, one of the things that I'm kind of noticing as I'm working through the text here is that on the one hand, we do have God's laws. The things that he enforces, the rules that he puts into place. And many of them are attached with punishments. Like, if in fact your ox, like, destroys some property, but, you know, you were not warned about it beforehand, then you have to pay the owner of the property according to whatever was lost. Um, or, you know, if your ox gores his ox and, you know, there was no indication that this was going to happen, then, then, like, you sell the good ox and you, like, share, you split the dead one and you split the, the proceeds of both. Like, everybody goes home equal. Like, admittedly, this cannot necessarily make up for the guy who lost something, but it also, you know, doesn't totally bankrupt you in the process. Again, you know, this is God doing the justice part of being God. But the holiness part of being God is kind of a whole different conversation and a really messy and complicated one that we only see glimpses of. Like, frequently, again, not to, again, harp on the 21st century, but... Contemporary Christians usually argue that, like, the reason why they're upset about abortion or homosexuality or sexual sin or whatever is because it somehow offends God on some basic level. I've argued pretty effectively that it is not offending God's justice or God would have made a much bigger deal out of it. So the other question then becomes, okay, so is it offending God's holiness? Like, much has been made about how sin offends God's holiness. Um, and much has also been made of the business of the cleanliness that we are seeing here in Exodus. Again, only in sort of like partial fleeting glimpses. But that line about how, you know, you have to be clean before you go before God on Mount Sinai and therefore the men are not allowed to go unto their wives. There is certainly a suggestion here that sex somehow makes you unclean. Um, and we're going to see more evidence of that in the Levitical laws and elsewhere. But notice, too, that this is further complicated by the fact that, like, we actually get quite a bit of insight into what cleanliness 
looks like when we are describing Aaron and the tabernacle and Aaron's vestments and how Aaron has to prepare himself for sacrifices. Like, on the one hand, we get this pretty clear indication that, like, um, like a woman who is menstruating is unclean and a man who has had sex is unclean. But at the same time, like, if Aaron is going to sanctify himself for, say, the Feast of Atonement, like is described here, he actually has to kill an animal and take its blood and, like, put it at particular places on his body. Like, on his thumb, for example. And that this is somehow purifying him. Sanctifying him. And this is important specifically because when Aaron, in fact, goes into the holiest of holies, like this one time out of the whole year, there is a decent chance that if he is not appropriately prepared for this, he's going to, like, get zapped right there. Like, he'll just be nothing but a pile of cinders. Like, they will find his body with the ephus just sitting on it. Like, it's not entirely clear how this works or why this works or why God might cause this to happen. But the strong indication here is that some of these things that we are encountering now that God is residing among the Israelites, now that we are starting to talk about the Ark of the Covenant and what we are putting in the Ark of the Covenant, like the one little jar of manna that we've collected that is apparently never going to go bad, but we're just going to like keep it as evidence of God forever and ever. Um, we are starting to bump into God himself. And apparently things have changed since the days of Adam and Abraham when God just like hung out with them and there didn't seem to be any problem. Now, if you get too close to God and you have not taken the proper precautions, there's a decent chance that you're just going to fry on the spot. And on the one hand, this is alarming. It does show us something about God that is really unsettling. That his holiness is something so powerful, so profoundly dangerous, that even if we are not necessarily doing anything wrong, doing anything explicitly sinful, if we are just unholy in this abstract, uncertain sense, there could be severe consequences for it. But I want to stress, the text doesn't seem to think that there's a problem with uncleanness in some way. Just that there is a great danger of uncleanness when it comes into contact with God's incredible holiness. Like, we're going to see more examples of this as we go, especially in the next section when Moses actually does meet God, like, face to face. And we get this moment of, like, profound holiness and exactly what sort of precautions Moses has to take in order to protect himself from the Godhead in its full revelation. What I want to emphasize here is that if, in fact, sex is a violation of God's holiness, which does seem to be the case here, there's no indication that that extends to it being wrong in some way. Again, nowhere in the Pentateuch have we seen any indication that sex is in some way sinful. Like, Genesis 2 very much emphasizes that sex is part of the original divine plan, and therefore they're, you know, like, Adam and Eve are apparently having sex with zero shame whatsoever. Like, there was a perfected version of sex at one point. Now we are seeing that maybe there is something about sex that does in fact offend God, but the warning is purely pragmatic, not judgmental. God is not like, you are gross because you have sex. He is saying, I am holy, and sex in some way abrogates that holiness. There could be a violent quasi-chemical reaction here. And that apparently the way to protect yourself is, as is the case with Aaron, to 
armor yourself. Armor yourself with the blood of an animal that has been sacrificed to this person. Armor yourself with the vestments that I have sanctified and particularly designed, especially with the repeated emphasis of all of the 12 tribes of Israel will be recorded on these things as the, you know, the writing on a signet seal. This somehow makes the relationship between God and humans more palatable on God's end. That apparently by reminding God of the promises he made to the 12 tribes of Israel or the history that he has with these people, or indeed in the sacrificial case, there seems to be a connection to that whole, you know, this is an animal that we acknowledged was in fact yours and that we therefore gave to you in that same Passover sense or, you know, Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham sense or in that mysterious, like God owns all of the firstborns for some reason sense. Like, by acknowledging that, we protect ourselves from this violence, but apparently some of the things that we do are a lack of acknowledgement that bring us farther away in some way. That's not to say that we have some obligation to be holy, especially, again, in Christian circles where it's just further complicated. What I want to emphasize is that if sex is unholy, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't even mean it's sinful. It just means that in some way, it's out of step with who God is in a way that we are certainly not in any position to remark upon and certainly cannot, like, explain or justify. This is very heavily in the God moves in mysterious ways territory. Who God is, we cannot understand. And therefore, if we are trying to, like, understand holiness, you've totally missed the boat here. Holiness is the mystery that we are not able to understand. We will get glimpses of it over the course of this passage and elsewhere. But if you are looking for the how to be holy solution, you're not gonna find it, here in the Pentateuch at least. Holiness is not on the table here. It is not something humans can be. The issue is cleanliness rather than holiness. Be clean so God's holiness doesn't like destroy you utterly that's pretty much as much as we can say here now that said we're going to look at it more closely as we encounter other cleanliness holiness passages um further on in this text but i don't think it is necessarily something that we're going to solve if you think you understand what it means to be holy i don't think you're even like approaching this text correctly in some respect um it's just by its nature, something bound up with the mysteriousness, the otherness of God. Um, so next week we will look at some more interesting passages revealing who God is, including one of the most important passages of all. God will in fact tell us who he is. Um, and that's just shockingly forthright on his part. Um, and I expect that we will spend quite a bit of time examining the, that passage. Like, as much as this is going to be a fairly short reading compared to the others we've had recently, like, this is going to be, like, nine chapters compared to the 15 we've had over the last several, um, I suspect we will have a lot to discuss in the discussion of the golden calf, Moses' encounter with God himself, and God's own sort of changes to the plan as it goes. Um, it is another weird, crazy passage with a lot to unpack. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.
Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.